to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers. You can drop us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts. Really appreciate that. This week, we are here to talk about the 1990 film Dark Man, and I am honored to welcome to the show Kevin Smith. Not that Kevin Smith. How often do you get that, first of all? Oh, gosh. Almost every time. I always get people looking up at me from my license like, dude, you look really skinny for you know. <laughs> um, But it, it happens every once in a while. But uh, I changed I changed my Twitter name just in case. Yeah, yeah. Probably a good idea. I mean, he, he's he's a cool person. I'm a fan of his. So, I mean, if they're going to get if you're going to get mistaken for someone famous, might as well be someone that seems kind of chill. Oh, he's very awesome. Have you ever gotten to meet him before? I have not. I've seen him live. I've seen him. I uh, did mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood Babylon when he did that, uh, when he came to Orlando, I'm in Florida. And uh, when he did uh, Jay and Silent Bob Get Old with Jason Mewes. And then when he was touring with the uh, the reboot, Jay and Silent Bob reboot, I went to see that as well. So I've seen him live a few times, but I've never, I've never actually met him. Oh, that's very cool. No, in real life, he is like the nicest person on earth. That's um, very good to hear. I remember people like coming away from him from signings and stuff like that. Just thinking like he was a huge smart ass, but he's just, he likes to talk and play and joke with people. So it's like, if you're that kind of person, he's the nicest, sweetest person ever. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. He's, Cause they always tell you, you know, don't, don't, you don't want to meet these people you admire or, or you look up to or whatever, because they rarely live up to it. So it's good to hear that he's uh, actually, he seems very genuine. Like he seems like he is what he is the person he projects himself to be on his podcast and, and things like that. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, I would say so. In the, in the handful of times that I've met him, I'd, I'd say that's pretty much the case. Yeah. Yeah. So let, tell people listening a little bit about you, Kevin Smith. Uh, this Kev Smith is still kind of funny, still a huge nut for movies, love the classics. Uh, I tend to work more in the mystery science theater field. Nice. So I do a lot more, uh, work with them as far as promoting what's going on, uh, running MST3K motivation on Twitter and Facebook, making memes for people and just keeping the Misty's posting what's going on and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's this Kev Smith, not, not nearly as cool as that Kevin Smith, but still just as much fun sometimes, just as much of a big dork. So what is the latest with MST3K? I guess, since you're, you know, that's sort of your wheelhouse, anything to report, anything happening? Yes, they have two new shorts coming out pretty soon, um, thanks to the donations of Misty's. Um, they recently had a fundraiser for uh, an organization called MIGSY, which was to help uh, benefit uh, a Native American group, a youth Native American group in Minneapolis that was damaged during the riots. Mm-hmm. Um, and they doubled their fundraiser goal. I want to say twice maybe they, they doubled it. But after the after they reached the goal the first time, Joel already said, "Yes, we're gonna we're gonna make two new shorts uh, that have never been riffed before, and I will riff them along with uh, Crow and Servo. I believe is going to be the case, and Crow and Servo are going to be played by uh, J. Elvis Weinstein and Bill Corbett. Nice. 
Yeah. How long how how long have you been involved with all of that? Because I I've been aware of MST3K for forever, obviously, because it's been around forever. But mm-hmm. I haven't ever really like delved into more than a few of the episodes, and so I'm really curious what your experience is in that world and what that's really like, kind of being in the thick of it. Um, I've been watching. I want to say since maybe '94, okay. um, when it was still on Comedy Central. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't really delve into it the way that I did, which another way of saying that is basically sticking my foot in the door right? and saying, I'm here. Um, <laughs> That's how you got to do it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> until about 2017. Um, I just had uh, some kids. I had two kids at that point, and both of which were on the uh, autism spectrum. And the doctor told us that neither one of my kids would talk. The, the uh, Mystery Science Theater revival came out, and my son really took to that and he started watching other episodes and he, uh, we were watching, I think Ega maybe after the first tour and my son was just sitting up against the TV and he says, Joel. And that was, he, Barry was clearly pointing out Joel. And the next thing you know, he's saying Crow and Servo and Jonah. So that really put my heart in the spot that this was even more special MST is more special than what it was for me growing up, which was still really important and special. But the fact that it helped my my son speak when he was told that he was never going to do so was just really special to me. So I basically said, you know what, I need to give back. And that's what I've been trying to do for the last three years is just do what I can to make sure everybody knows about it, Mystery Science Theater, and that it's as funny as it is. It helps people out. It makes everyone feel better. And you laugh the entire time. So it's, it's, it's been a fun ride in the last three years. But right now, uh, things are changing a bit. I can't, I can't really talk about what I'm doing anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, uh, it's really cool because I feel like I'm able to help the show out more in ways that the show needs to be helped out rather than just being the internet kind of guy that I was. Right, right. Yeah, what a great story yeah. though. How you got involved with it. That's that's really that's really uh beautiful. And I I think the thing that they the thing about what they do that is so fun is that you know, they it it's, it always feels like it comes from a place of of appreciation of, you know, these ridiculous movies and and yes, they're they're mocking them, but it's also just like the bringing the way that movies bring us together and it's really kind of celebrating that as opposed to you know, you see, a, especially now on the internet, you see a lot of like mean-spirited kind of commentary towards things like nitpicking and, and instead of just leaning into how fun movies can be and kind of the communal aspect of it. And I think right now, especially in the pandemic where movie theaters are just now, some starting to open and some still, you know, closed indefinitely. I think that's that's something that uh, that I miss a lot. You know, this year has been very devoid of that kind of shared experience. Yeah, and that's true. And I used to work at a movie theater back in what, from 96 to 98, I think it was. And we would we were family that worked there. We watched movies alone together before anybody else would get to see them and that was our little mystery science theater group and having fun, but you don't you don't really get that opportunity anymore even if you worked at a movie theater, which who does anymore at this point. Mhm. Yeah, um, exactly. But with the riffs, I mean, those those are always 
an uplifting perspective, I think. Like you said, it, it, it brings people together in embracing movies. A lot of people have the misunderstanding that riffs or riffers are just sarcastic and snarky and throwing comments out at a movie and basically kicking it while it's down. Oh, here's a bad movie. Let's kick it some more. Mm-hmm. That's really not the case. If if you watch Mystery Science Theater, a lot of the movies that they've riffed are movies that some people have seen many times before, not riffed in the theater on VHS or what have you. And and here, yes, in this day and age, it becomes a lot more cheesier, a lot less acceptable than what it was back then. And really the show and the writers, they embrace those kind of movies because they grew up with them as well. So they're not throwing snark at it. They're actually enjoying watching that cheesy movie and they're making the observations and the commentary about it. If anything is ever sarcastic or snarky, it's probably from one of the robots that's supposed to be having that character. But otherwise, it's all just good-natured ribbing and fun. And that's... Who could ask for more than that in this day and age right now? Right. It's finding a way to enjoy movies that most people would have already dismissed and just kind of oh, yeah. thrown away too. And that's, yeah, kind of showing that even, even movies that are, you know, not necessarily the best quality production or, or all that, that are kind of obviously the low budget end and, and all of that, the, the, uh, the B movies and stuff that there is, that there's still enjoyment to be had from, from pretty much every, just about every cinematic experience. And I, and I like that in that way, I feel like there is sort of a, a an ongoing kind of positive thread throughout all, all of their work. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that they've breathed life into or kept life breathed into is the Hercules franchise. Everything that they've punched down on Hercules has like I remember all those old Steve Reeves movies. You know, my dad used to watch those all the time. So I had no idea growing up that those were supposed to be cheesy films or mm-hmm. if they were at the time. But, you know, you keep seeing them now and people still know, oh, okay, Steve Reeves was Hercules. You know, they're not just hearing it from the Rocky Horror Picture Show in that one line. But, uh, you know, people still have that familiarity with with older heroes and classics and things like that. And I think that has that usefulness, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Breathing life into movies that wouldn't otherwise have it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I mean, I don't... Dark Man was a box office success sort of kind of enough to spawn two straight to video sequels and uh and a cult following but i wanted to talk before we get into the movie i wanted to talk about sam raimi as a filmmaker so where are you generally on sam raimi i think i know the answer to this but where do you where do you put sam raimi's filmography and you know what do you consider some of his best films and then we'll talk about where darkman darkman and darkman i'm going to start pronouncing it darkman i like that where dark where darkman lands within uh within his career oh that's that's a big broad open question yeah. so firstly i want to say there was only one sam raimi movie that i didn't like that didn't involve spider-man um like i i i really think he's just he's a unique and soulful director i like what he does for the most part um i don't like what happens when studios get involved with his work or his thought process because his charm is his own having his own shtick his own thing to the movies the way he films the way that the same in the same wheelhouse that uh the three stooges did no one else makes a movie that way anymore and makes it interesting but he still does his his ideas are just great and the people that he works with constantly are equally creative so i mean i love sam raimi 
Is it is it Oz the Great and Powerful, the one you're you're talking about? I was no. to throw that out there. It's not. Okay, interesting. No, I actually liked Oz the Great and Powerful. Um it didn't bother me nearly that much. Like mm-hmm. Return to Oz was a little bit more offensive if you want to get back to it. But right. um I still like Return to Oz too. Yeah, but I do too. I grew up with that one. It was uh, a simple plan. That was the only one of his movies where I was kind of like, this this is different. And now that's fine. It wasn't a bad movie. Yeah. It just, it just, it didn't, it wasn't evil dead for me. It wasn't army of darkness. It wasn't dark man, anything like that. So I, I didn't have the appreciation for it when it came out, I think. Okay. okay or wasn't willing to have that appreciation for it. Well made. It just wasn't my thing. I think he, he's an inch. He says that he's had an interesting progression in his career too. Cause I was watching obviously dark man for this episode and I was looking at his filmography and and really pinpointing how clearly Darkman is a pivot point from Evil Dead to Spider-Man. Like, it feels like, you, you know, you might watch Evil Dead 2 and then see Spider-Man and be like, how did this guy get from here to here? Like, I, you know, you still see his stylistic touch, touches and his personality put in it and all that, but it feels like a different genre in a way. And I feel like Darkman splits the difference that it's sort of part the aesthetic of evil dead and part leaning towards the superhero and, and the comic booky stuff. So do, how do you feel about where dark man sits within, you know, right between basically evil dead two and army of darkness. And then he starts doing the studio stuff, the quick and the dead, a simple plan for love of the game, things like that. Yeah. Um, I would say dark man definitely is that turning point. I want to say emotionally for him, that was probably the turning point for him because universal was so against a lot of the things that he his vision for what dark man would be or who he would be rather. I think the, that movie was necessary at the time. It, mm-hmm. it opened a door for him and you want to say, okay, that was 1990, 1991. He didn't, you weren't hearing his name again in, in huge success until 2000 with Spider-Man for the most part. But that's really not true. I want to say Darkman really kicked open the door for him to do a lot of other creative things, starting with Briscoe County Jr. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I think Briscoe County Jr. was really that step from going from, from your Evil Dead horror type movies to more heroic type. And I think Dark, Darkman was really his his way of saying, yes, I can do this. He always wanted to do it. He kept getting turned down for the shadow and Batman, but he, he had a story to tell. He had a character that he wanted to make a franchise type deal or, or um, the hero type movie, like you said, and he did it. He did it. He got a lot of flack from it, from the studio. And I think that put a real sour taste in his mouth. And I want to say it was it was TV that really kept him going and going towards that more heroic aspect. But yeah. I don't think he would have done that at all without without the experience from Darkman. And I I also like the fact that this movie sort of uh, leverages the the success of the the eighty nine Batman, and it's in mm-hmm. kind of there's you know I think people forget there was like a moment in the early nineties where comic book movies were starting to kind of. There, there was the studio was Hollywood starting to churn out a bunch of them. Like before we got to Spider-Man and X-Men and all that stuff, there was Batman, there was Dick Tracy, there was uh, Ninja Turtles and this sort of not based on a comic book, but one of the best comic book movies, not based on a comic book basically. And it falls right within, like you said, the shadow, which is something he wanted to do, which mm-hmm. was made into a movie a few years later. 
And, and, uh, and then I think kind of that trend fizzled out, but it's, it's funny to think that this was almost like the Sam Raimi comic book movie that started to keep that trend going and, uh, and how it kind of didn't in a way. And I, and it, cause I, I think it's just because this is not a, a mainstream move. Like you couldn't, I mean, I saw this as a kid, but I was rewatching it now and having my yeah. own kid. I was like, wow, I probably shouldn't have seen this as a kid. This is like really violent. <laughs> like, you, like you don't realize it as a kid. You're like, oh, that's just what happens. He twists the guy's finger and like his face is all like uh, dipped in acid or whatever. Like it's just very visceral. And I think that's kind of what I mean when I say that it, it's the the balance between Evil Dead and Spider-Man and that it's the heroic, you know, origin story, technically. He has abilities, which we'll get into, which they have mm-hmm. a big scene basically highlighting, look, he's got superpowers. Um, and But it's still grimy. It's still dirty. It still has the Dutch angles. It's still shot in that way that makes it feel very chaotic in the Evil Dead style. And, and I love the way that he wraps in, you know, an homage to like Universal Horror and Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback. Like there's a lot of that going on like, there's a lot there's there's a ton of influences behind this movie and i think that's a big part of why why it works so well as sort of a pastiche of all these different genres agreed agreed and it's it's because he has like you said that love for so many things and he takes inspiration from so many film genres um most specifically like you said the dutch angles he is famous for using those in movies and he yeah. uses them properly so good i loved them in dark man it's to me it was more effective than when quentin tarantino tried to tried to uh have that similar effect with kill bill mm-hmm. where anytime uh uma thurman would see one of the the five venoms or five vipers you'd hear the womp 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 you can get that from you. You get that vibe from Darkman when when he starts to to have his synapse misfires and whatnot. But it fits better and it feels better. It's not over the top and it it, it just works out okay. You want to say this is a cheesy movie and it's way over the top, but it fits and it works out okay. Now, it, it, what you were saying as far as the other superhero movies in that in that era, mm-hmm. um, let's let's go over the the big ones that we looked for. I mean, we would get at that point just starting to get hero magazine and wizard magazine and they would have spotlights on the things that were coming out and i remember one of the biggest spotlights they had was roger corman's fantastic four wanting to come out oh yeah and i was so nuts for that and we had no expectations at that time so the movie could have come out and still be higher be held in a higher regard than what the the other three movies were which i i think it technically still is but then Captain America, the Punisher, uh, the TV Incredible Hulk movies were actually the only okay comic book movies that really came out prior to and then even after Darkman for a little while. But Darkman, I can't exclude it from the comic genre. I, it's not fair to say that, that the boom started in 98 with Blade. I'd say the boom probably could have started in 90 with Darkman. Mm-hmm. Darkman was so good and had that vibe of that summer comic book blockbuster. But what, what was the first thing that you remember happening in the comic stores after Darkman came out? Marvel made a book of it. Uh, yeah, I did see that. So, There's actually been a, several of them, it seems like. It's, mm-hmm. They've really kept the franchise alive in, in comic book form and in novel form. Like I didn't even realize that until I did research because that there was so much coverage of like that Darkman had been growing 
so much since uh, the sequels, which I did see. I actually have the DVD trilogy box set with the two straight to video sequels, which are you know not very good, but it's more dark man, so I'll take it. It's <laughs> pretty much my attitude with those. <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen any more than five minutes of part two. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I've seen part three at all. Yeah. Part three is uh, the one with Jeff Fahey as the villain and uh, subtitled Die Dark Man Die. <laughs> oh, okay. So maybe that's the one I've seen then. Yeah, maybe. This Well, the second one, The Return of Durant, which I, you know, I almost kind of admire their confidence. I mean, like people are going to know who Durant is. Everybody's going to remember that, right? Not just the diehards. Um, <laughs> but he, it, you know, quick tangent, he just wakes up. He was in a coma, even though his helicopter exploded and he doesn't even have a scratch on him. He's not disfigured, nothing. And it's just like, okay, well, this, is, this is the kind of, this is how we're rolling with it. It's just like pretending that didn't happen. Even <laughs> though they show footage of it, they showed archive footage of the first movie in the beginning of the second one with the explosion. And everything, and it's just like, yeah, we're gonna blow right past that. Like, All right, sure. Um, he uh, he jumped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, that's what happened. He jumped out of the helicopter. Uh, but yeah, no, I. It's he is probably one of the best filmmakers uh, at capturing the the precise tone of what comic books are like in their essence, and and keeping that keeping things over the top, keeping things campy, still having you emotionally invested in the, in the characters and in the arcs, but not so not, you know, not like the Nolan thing, which I love the dark Knight movies, but they're very self-serious. They're very, you know, earnest and upfront about that. Uh, and almost try and like ashamed sweeping under the rug. Like don't pretend, pretend this is not about a comic book. Um, and he doesn't lean so much into the, into the whatever silly, comic book silliness, whatever that means. Uh, where it still feels like you're still invested. You're not just like, it's not, it's like cartoonish, but in a fun way, not in a way that makes you feel like it's insulting your intelligence, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. Like I said, it just, even though it's supposed to be a campy movie and it is like, it's, it feels okay. Like, wow, this is fun. It doesn't feel like you're watching a Steven Seagal movie where there's, you know, no one ever reloads and the guy's never actually in any peril. For as campy as the blue screens are, or the green screens, whatever, if you had that emotional connection to it, like, oh gosh, he's really flying through that helicopter, the flying, uh, hanging from the helicopter through the skies and stuff, it it made you feel something other than than bored. It right. made you feel fun, and you did feel a little bit of that adrenaline thrill. It made you laugh some. It, it was just it was well balanced. And and it fits with Danny Elfman's score as well. It's everything was just great about Darkman. And I believe this was the beginning of the Raimi Elfman partnership that carried into Spider Man and, and a bunch of other things too. I think so. I yeah. think so. Which what a perfect fit that is. I actually love this the score to this movie. I've listened to it when I'm writing. I just be you know, on Spotify or whatever, and mm-hmm. it's kind of built. You know, I think I had the. Uh, one of the Danny Elfman like compilations uh, from a uh, in a darkened theater or whatever one of those he had he had a couple of them and yeah. it had the the suite I think from Darkman I would listen to that a lot I love the music in this as well so I'm glad we we're just throwing that out there um, it sounds like we're pretty much into the movie so I feel like let's just transition into into a little bit of the trailer for Darkman right now they destroyed everything he had all that he loved. Everything that he was. Now, crime has a new enemy. 
and justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. He has the power to look like any man. There's two both sons of witches! But he is unlike any man. I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. You think you're killing? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour. Julie, who's the real monster here? There's a light that shines on every human being. But one. From director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. That was a little bit of the trailer for Dark Man from 1990, obviously directed by Sam Raimi. So I, another thing I thought was really interesting about this is that the marketing campaign was really hyping up who is Dark Man, like the big mystery behind it. Because I think, as you were mentioning, the studio didn't really have uh, have much faith in this movie. And I, I'm, it's unclear in my research whether Raimi was satisfied with this movie. It didn't seem like it, but it also feels like his vision is uh, is pretty retained on screen. So I wonder, do you have any insight into what uh, Raimi really wanted this to be and, and if he's you know pleased with the outcome? He was not. Uh, so an article, I just read an article, the studio forced the editor basically out he said he had a mental breakdown but the studio basically forced the editor out and they brought their own guy in to cut the movie down to what they wanted and i want to say they cut it down to 85 minutes it it didn't follow the story that he wanted it it didn't show the character behind peyton that he really wanted he wanted peyton to be a man inside of a monster's body right what we saw in the theaters was not what universal cut what happened was, is the film was about to go to print or was about to get locked and go to print. And I want to say it was Bob Tappert that asked him, you're not happy with this. I'm not happy with this. Why are we sending this in? Bob Tappert convinced Ramey to basically not lock the film that Universal had. What they did was, is they spent for the next 48 hours, Saturday and Sunday, re-editing the movie in in a in a way that was going to make Universal and Sam sort of happy, and we got to see more of Sam's vision, and he didn't tell them, and then he locked the film, and they found out after they made uh, a bunch of prints of it, so they were pretty unhappy with Sam Raimi after that. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> I think so because it was a better film. Yeah, and, and and with all the talk of the Snyder cut or or whatever else cut that you want to see of whatever superhero movie that was failed from DC. I would be more interested in seeing a Sam Raimi cut of dark man. Like uh, give me two hours of wh whatever his vision was. Right. Hell yeah. And you know what? The funny thing is too, that it, it, if I'm asked, if I'm sort of get, uh, guessing correctly, I feel like the scenes that they would have cut out would have been, a lot of his his freak out moments so like when he's reacting mm -hmm. superly emotional so i don't know if that includes the pink elephant scene which we'll get to which is <laughs> one of the masterworks in the movie i would say is the whole like i you know when when i was watching it last night and it got to the fair scene i just said to myself like oh fuck here we go <laughs> right, <laughs> right into this shit um and then uh the scene in um 
the scene in what I'm calling what I'm going to call his dark cave where mm-hmm. he has the little uh, the little outburst towards the cat and he put he's like oh maybe I should wear a little hat and he puts on the the funnel <laughs> and does the see the dancing freak just five bucks that whole thing I loved those scenes as a kid and I think those is, those scenes are the ones that make you make sure that you're on his side because he is very much sort of an anti-hero and that he he is uh, you know he has this obviously this rage issues and and everything after everything he's been through and we have that that great uh, exposition scene with uh, with the doctor played by Jenny Agutter I think how you say her name I forget um, yeah. uh, where she's saying he's got no pain amplified emotions and you get the whole they took my hands thing. Uh, when him freaking out about that, which I, lo- I love all that stuff. I think that's the the emotional undercurrent of the movie. You take that out and it feels really hollow. And I, I think that's what, what Universal wanted was like, this is all too much story. People want action, yeah, blah, see, blah, blah. And it's like, no, disagree. I, I want to see all that. And I don't, Universal, I could go off on a huge tangent about Universal and Warner Brothers, but Universal is so far removed from what beyond the popcorn audience wants. Mm-hmm. They could sit and make their explosion movies, their stunt car driving movies or whatever else. But when it comes to a well thought out film, you're not likely going to get it from universal half the time. It's something that expresses emotion. That's fun for everybody or that is a director's choice. You're not right. going to get that from universal. No, 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 no. <laughs> Well, I mean, right now their main franchises are uh, Fast and Furious um, and um, Jurassic World, which you know I kind of enjoyed the, the those oh, those are okay, but I wouldn't say that they're great stories or that those are actual characters or anything like that. They're just banking on nostalgia with those, pretty much. So, I mean, I I understand where you're coming from. I'm not really going to argue against it. Yeah, I just say uh, between them and Warner Brothers ruining every franchise they possibly have, I'm just like, I don't have anything nice to say about either one of you. <laughs> but they, um, Universal, if, if they would have just left it to what he wanted and, and let it focus on, on those character pieces, I think that would have made Darkman even more successful, compounding with the marketing gimmicks that they did. Mm-hmm. because Darkman is an understandable character. He's not like Batman. Everyone understands Batman wants, wants justice for his parents. Not everyone understands what it's like to be a billionaire and a ninja and things like that. So whatever. Darkman is a lot more realistic. Everyone's been hurt before. Everyone's had their heart broken and longed for somebody else. And everyone's, everyone has felt ugly, has been depressed. Kids, when we were kids, when we were, well, I think I was 10 when Darkman came out. You're able to understand Darkman because you can't control your emotions. You don't understand them any more than he did. Mm-hmm. As an adult, you could look back and you could envy Darkman because he doesn't have to obey those emotions. You learn how to, how to keep that rage knit as an adult. You got to bite your lip and everything else and son of a bitch under your breath. No, if you're Darkman, you can get that fucking elephant. You know, so as an adult, you could aspire to want to be that anti-hero. As in a kid, I think you're able to understand that hero. Like I have all that rage too. Ah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing. Like ultimately, he just wants to be normal. He just wants to fit in. He he tries to, you know, to it takes him what I guess a few. I did the math. I think it's like 23 days or whatever for his his own phase to generate. 
yeah, based on <laughs> based on yeah, based on. Um, but like he has the the first thing he does when he sets up his, his lair is setting up the digitization of his face because the, the even the photo was was jacked up. Yeah, um, that was messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, geez, man. He's like, I don't know, photo of myself to work from. Um, but he just wants to get back to his old life. He wants, even in the beginning, like he's the one asking Julie to marry him, like kind of pleading with her. Like it's, it's a, normally you see the, the woman is more being like, let's settle down, blah, blah, blah. So I, just even there, like you, you, it's a lovely reversal of that character. And I think just from the first few minutes before the, the lab, uh, you know, the lab uh, destruction and all that stuff that happens, I think you, you really buy into Peyton Westlake as a character. And, and then, you know, 30 minutes in, it turns into essentially a revenge story, sort of a, I just did an episode not long ago on uh, Machete and Machete Kills and the whole Grindhouse thing. And this, watching this now so close to that, I didn't really realize as a kid, because I wasn't aware of that phenomenon at the age of what was I seven or whenever this came out? I don't think I saw it right when it came out, but like probably a couple of years later, mm-hmm. uh, this is very much sort of a grindhouse esque movie. It's a, it, you know, it's a tight 90 minutes. It's like very uh, gratuitous with the violence and all that stuff. So it feels like it has elements of some of that. And uh, I don't know. I think he, he harnesses that in a really, in a really visceral, powerful and like tangible way. And I think a lot of that starts with Liam Neeson. So we should probably start about him. First of all, uh, everybody just in two thousands was Liam Neeson action star. And I'm like, yeah, did you guys see not see dark man as a kid? Like what's going on? Yeah. I had, I would get the same thing from people. Even my wife, I think at one point before she'd seen taken, she was like, Liam Neeson was, was the main character in this. And he's, he's a superhero. I'm like, yes, he's awesome. <laughs> like his deliveries are awesome. His one liners are great. Um, and she watched it and she's like, wow, that, that really was Liam Neeson being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's too bad. It took from whenever dark man to taken to come out that he got the respect that he needs. Cause he was amazing in this. He was, like you said, he was a lovely human being that you could actually sit and watch a movie about Peyton Westlake yeah. prior to the accident. And then, you know, just that twisted turn of fate that seeing, what he has to deal with where he gets an injury almost akin to what happened to what was his name? Phineas Gage. Mm-hmm. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think so. yeah. He had the, the railroad spike blown through his, his uh, jaw and it came out through the, straight through the top of his head and it blew apart his, um, I want to say his hypothalamus, the middle section of the brain. Mm-hmm. So his brain couldn't function properly. And I want to say this might've been part of the, uh, part of the experience or part of the um, inspiration for dark man's issues was Phineas had the same issue of not being able to, to function properly in social crowds. He had to take himself away or keep himself away from everybody or people had to keep him away from public because he would freak out randomly. And Peyton, again, you have to cry for this man because not only does he have only 99 minutes each time he wants to go out into the sun with the woman that he loves, that he just longs to be with more than anything else, but then he's got to deal with his mental issues that could happen within those 99 minutes. So you really, he's, he's a really sympathetic character that can't do much socially. Mm-hmm. But again, to your point... And once he puts that cloak on or, or takes his mask off, rather, he could do whatever he wants. He's physically free to do whatever he wants, but it's not what he wants. 
that's that power is not what he wants. He wants Julie, of course. Right. And it, like, again, like you said, his old life back. Um, the concept of the 99 minute masks just in and of itself is so ingenious. Just the fact that, yeah, you can go out, you can pretend to be other gangsters. You can like, you know, turn them against each other. That whole thing, which I love that whole segment yes. of the movie, that whole middle, like whatever half hour, that whole, where he's taking on, you know, oh, there goes Ted Raimi. Oh, Polly's flying. Have a nice flight, Polly. All of that stuff. I loved all that stuff. Uh, especially with Durant, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but it's just that concept alone, it really makes me wish that there were either more of these with Liam Neeson or like this is, and I hope this isn't blasphemous when I say this, but this feels like a property that if you're going to do an extension of some kind of you know, franchise or whatever, I would like more of Darkman. Like this concept has so much potential to be an ongoing thing if they wanted to if Raimi was able to do something like they just did with Ash versus Evil Dead and we got 30 uh 30 episodes more of Bruce Campbell fighting deadites like if they were able to do something like that with the character of Darkman there is so much potential and so much material you can work with just with like we said with the that that dichotomy between Darkman and Peyton Westlake with the 99 minute masks with that and the straight to video sequels sort of try and do something with that, but it's just not very successful in execution. Uh, What are your thoughts on whether they should try and do something else with this franchise? I mean, obviously it wouldn't be this, but it would be, I feel like there's more there. There's potentially a lot more there if it was given the proper respect. Yeah. Um, But again, all going back to Universal, any franchise, successful franchise they've had, they have screwed the pooch as hard as they could mm-hmm. and as dry as they could um <clears throat> you look at their monster movies they've been screwing those up for the last 22 years um their universal classics i mean was to the mm-hmm. point where they have to dump their their idea every so many years to restart we we live in a society right now or a film society that they are afraid to put out anything that's untested or that they feel is untested. Yeah. So I'm not sure that Universal would want another major bl- Darkman blockbuster. But I think if if Raimi was able to get those rights back and do it with his own production company, I think he'd have a hell of a reboot on his hands. If a movie was to be rebooted, Darkman mm-hmm. would be a good one to do a reboot for. Right. Not RoboCop, where they missed the point altogether. <laughs> Darkman is a damn good movie to reboot that still is relevant. It doesn't. It, it's not. It's not uh, a time period necessary outside of like needing real science and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they could they could redo it now. I'd still I'd still greatly enjoy it. They could reboot it. They could have a franchise, and as long as Sam Raimi had say so in it, you could still have that underlying character of, of Peyton Westlake being this tragic man wanting to be and not being able to. So I think it would be perfect if Universal actually gave it a chance or gave up the rights. It's funny that you mentioned RoboCop because I didn't make note of the obvious similarities between RoboCop and Darkman in that they were essentially both really, you know, good men at the beginning who are victimized by criminals and then, you know, become something totally different, have to adjust to being, you know, either uh, completely disfigured or 
you know, half machine, most more than half machine. He's basically just like a, <laughs> a head and a spinal cord at, the, at, the, yeah. at that point. Uh, <laughs> it's been a while since I've gone back and, and rewatched uh, the original RoboCop. But, um, but yeah, so it, with the, the way that the violence, the intensity of the violence as well, and just they feel like it feels cut from the same cloth as, as Darkman very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at least the original anyway, the first right. two, I'd, exactly. I'd give it. Um, the new one. No, 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 never, no. Yeah, never no, I meant a shot. No, for Hovens. <laughs> for but sure. I, I really liked the similarities. And like you said, the, the violence is, they're all practical effects. It's not CGI. Yep. So it, it gives you that gross out factor of you. That's real. Um, you know, that's, that's another one of the, the grindhouse features. I think that you mentioned is like that it, it gives it that charm grindhouse charm the more practical latex and blood effects um and even when i don't know if we could do that today though i don't know if 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 hollywood allow something like that to be done today i would love it if they did um hell i i i would prefer a practical effects reboot to a cgi reboot of anything Mm -hmm. and even but just because I think because of the way the movie is campy, even when it is, you know, stop motion, like with the hands getting burnt up or whatever, it still mm-hmm. looks cool. It's, it's still, it, it ages well that it's, and for some reason, stop motion ages better than CG. And I guess that is because ultimately they are working from something tangible. It's just there, you, you know what I mean? It just, it yeah. adds to the, to the vibe. It adds to the sort of, uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but because I've gone it's back. It's why we still love yeah, it's it's why we still love Ray Harry Ray Harryhausen movies, no matter right. how goofy they those may be. Um, you always want to sit and watch it because darn it, those monsters look cool. Yeah, you know, and the same thing with the hand, the, the his his hand being burnt and then typing that was just so yes. neat looking. It reminded me of Ash's evil hand. Yeah, but, absolutely. But stepped up a bit. I liked it. It it just <laughs> it was just a neat effect. And like you said, you, you, you really can't beat stop motion on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Too many people enjoy it. Um, and this, this it used it right. He doesn't overuse those things. And I think that's another one of, the, one of his aspects that work, is he uses the special talents that he has just in minor doses. And it's like the high point in a song that makes a song perfect almost. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I want to also, since we're talking about the performances, Frances McDormand, two-time Oscar winner. Uh, obviously, this was the first thing I'd really seen her in as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does a lot with the material she's given here. I mean, she's mostly the supportive girlfriend, that kind of thing. But I mean, I think she brings a lot to it. And she, you sort of, I don't know, what do you, how do you feel about her performance in this? Because I think, I think she's, she's, uh, she does a good job with what she has to do, I think, is a nice way of putting it. I think so. I yeah. think so. I, I don't think I can't necessarily think of anyone else necessarily doing a better job or, or being, Oh, you know, who would have been perfect for that? No, I, I really like Francis McDermott. Um, apparently and, Julia Roberts was like in up for it or whatever, and then dropped left to do pretty woman. And I don't, I don't know if that would have worked as well here for some reason. She doesn't have the same gravitas. No, she doesn't. And, and with no disrespect to her, I just, right. I, I, I think Fran's a much better actress um, I think her roles are, are funnier in a lot of ways. I think they're, her characters you're more able to get into than Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. Julia Roberts plays Julia Roberts. I don't always see her playing other characters. Right. Um, 
but yeah, Francis and Sam had a lot of creative differences, I believe on this one, because she thought Julie should be one person and Sam wanted her to act another way for the movie to be what he wanted. And they had to come to a common ground. And I, from what I understand, Liam Neeson was the one that kind of settled that between them. Um, with their with their theater work that they'd done they'd gotten together and said let's rehash these these few scenes which i think was their love scenes and their their conversation scenes as if we were an actual couple mm-hmm. and i think that's what really helped her be a better julie than someone say like julia roberts or gosh i can't even think of who else was up for the role they they'd reviewed a few people but julia roberts was that big one like you said yeah, but I think I, I saw that like I'm Demi Moore, Bridget Fonda, Demi Moore, people like that were also testing for it. Yeah. But I, it feels like, I think with Frances McDormand, it feels like they're more on an even playing field, like they're equal partners as mm-hmm. opposed to casting someone much younger than Liam Neeson. Like, I don't know. It feels like, it feels like th- this feels like a more real relationship. And I, th- I guess a lot of that is, like you said, probably from the way the actors uh, worked on those scenes. And, he, you know, we don't have a lot of time with them before he no. turns into Dark Man. And then even from that point, the movie does everything it can to make sure that we're on his, not only on his side, but also feeling his pain at the loss of that relationship. I mean, one of the first things he does when he emerges is to try and to find her and he approaches her and she's scared oh. as shit because because uh, he can't know, he talk. Like, yeah. Yeah. Julie. Me. Julie. Yeah. Uh, great. Great. And then of course her and all her tolerance. Ah, get away from me. <laughs> pretty much essentially yeah um, <laughs> that's not how you care for the disabled exactly <laughs> no on, but Joy, that you know better than that that was heart-wrenching the the next bet worst heart-wrenching scene in a movie like that that i could think of off the top of my head is the original fantastic four where the thing couldn't pick up his wedding ring after his wife leaves it on the bridge and i was mm-hmm. like oh heartstrings yeah so I mean, yeah, him him trying to go back to her was really cool. The fact that he did keep going back to her was even cooler because if they would have just said, "Oh, okay, well, she's afraid of him, so he's going to go be a superhero elsewhere now." That that would have been cliché and that would have been boring and that would have been an injustice to her character. Right. Right. Well, he that since we're on their relationship already, he, when he does emerge, which if not for nothing, Peyton, but if you're going to reemerge and she thinks you're dead, you show up at a graveyard, like, like for maximum freak out. I mean, <laughs> from next a, from time, a, just say boo. Yeah. <laughs> might as well. It's faster. It cuts. It, yeah. It just gets to the point a little faster. Um, and you can tell the great thing about Neeson's performance is that he looks like Peyton Wesley Westlake, but underneath, you can see he is still like unstable and you could see it in his eyes. Like he looks crazy. He's trying to hide it from her, but I think yes. he plays that so well. And his lips and his smile, the cro- the crooks of his lips when he's, when he's talking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he gets so nervous. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's coming up with all this, like, Oh, I was in, in therapy. I got to go, you know, I, all these excuses for why they, he has to like leave after basically 99 minutes conveniently yeah. enough. Uh, and he's always pleading with her. Oh, you know, I love you so much. I love you so much. And that's that's part of the damage that happened to him. It's just like with with any other mental illness. If you suffer from, say, like bipolar disease, for as much as you suffer, 
when you have that manic moment, you love just as equally. Mm-hmm. So, and I th- want to say that doctor, the, the doctor that stabbed him in the leg kind of mentioned that too, that like outbursts of laughter, outbursts of love, and then the crying and everything else. So, and he blends that when he comes back wearing the mask all in like almost one sentence. And it's just amazing that he did that with that character. And you could feel his desperation to tell her the truth. Cause he's like, you know, Julie, like, what if I, what if I was scarred, like horribly disfigured and she's doesn't again, it's like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel about that. Uh, it's a, it's a sort of dynamic that something like Deadpool tried to, tries to do too, where he comes back and then he's just like, is she going to accept me? That kind of thing. And I think they, it, the way they play, the way that plays out, the way she, you know, he, t- he takes off with the pink elephant, which I, I'd forgotten that there's a moment where he's like turning like the fire escape or whatever on that building. And you still see him cleaning the pink elephant. I'm like, oh, he's really taking, <laughs> he's really committed to that pink elephant. <laughs> he, I mean, he won it that over after all. So technically it is his, um, but it's then she's tra- snuggle buddy. <laughs> yeah, he, he needs that. He needs something. <laughs> he needs a hug or something. Jesus. Uh, but she follows him back there. And, you know, she has, she realizes what, what's going on. She sees the face melt, basically, essentially in her hands, like all of that. I love the way that it, it, it they, they don't save that reveal for like the very last scene or anything either. Like, I feel like if yeah. they, if she had only seen his, if she had only really realized what was going on when, um, what is the name? Uh, Strack, I guess. Yeah. When he like rips his face, his mask off on the, you know, on the steel beams, I feel like it would, it wouldn't be doing that, uh, that relationship. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make it as compelling or have us, uh, as invested as it, as it does the way, that, the way that Raimi lays it out. Yeah. She wouldn't, there'd be no justification or reason for her to drop her, drop her jaw. Right. When Strack rips the mask off and says, see, who's the real monster here? Uh, <laughs> I love his performance too, by the way, Colin. Oh, it was so over the top. But at the same time, like this bad guy is just like casually walking across girders and having a good old time. Like he's drunk. And then like, if you take that, you have to think, stop to think to yourself, this guy is either a madman or actually a supervillain. Okay. Right. (laughs) I built it. I built it all. That's my favorite moment (laughs) with him. Where he's just like, wow, he's leaning into this like hardcore and I love it. Uh, and that's another example of this movie knowing exactly what it is. Like Raimi knows exactly the tone he's going for. And he, and, and all the performances are so pitch perfect in line with, with exactly what he's trying to tell. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's so, it's so great. It's so much fun to watch. Yeah. I, I liked it. And it's Strack was neat because how, and this is a problem with a lot of comic book movies, especially Spider-Man movies. Mm-hmm how do you handle a a superhero movie with multiple villains? Most movies don't do that well at all. Yeah. They don't, they don't manage it. Well, they will screw up the story for one. One will either uh, screw up the story for the other or will overshadow the story for the hero. This didn't happen between Strack and Durant. They work together pretty well as, as far as characters go, you know, Durant was just as evil, but I think completely opposite of of Strack and I think Strack's flamboyance balanced Durant's uh, psychotic quietness to a point, mm-hmm. and I I liked that about them. And you don't see that in any other superhero movie that I could think of. Yeah, no, that's true. 
you need that um, that evil mastermind, the billionaire, the Lex Luthor type, essentially. And he mm-hmm. is ultimately boils down to he is like basically a real estate douche. <laughs> that's kind yeah. of the whole movie. That's that's the other thing that's so funny about this movie, where all these you like genre conventions, horror and sci-fi and superhero all kind of exploding together. It all boils down to that fucking memo, the coffee cup ring (laughs) on it. And like, uh, I I just think that's so funny too, that the whole movie is really about paperwork. It's like, Oh, she's got proof of that. And, And I like that, that, I don't know. I just like the way that not one, the way that's telegraphed and two, the way that that's such a, such a, I don't know, such a, a superhero-y, comic booky convention. Yeah. Yeah, or almost even James Bond-like, you know, yeah. oh, here's, here's the secret document. We're going to build something beautiful together, that kind of <laughs> thing, yeah. <laughs> well, how do you feel about the way Julie handled that document? Because, like, she really got him messed up. Yeah, like, she did. <laughs> she left it there to hide it, everything. I guess, right? <laughs> I think so. Either that or she just forgot it. But like, she got mixed in with his things maybe in the morning or something. She's talking about confidential stuff in front of him while he's reading the paper. She's got uh, confidential papers mixed in with his. She goes to the person that she's investigating and tell him, oh, I think I found something on you. It's like, you could talk less, honey. You could talk less. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then Strack uh, leaves the memo just like sitting out. I forgot that it's just basically on the desk. I thought maybe it was sticking out of a folder or a file or underneath something. No, it's just literally just on top. And she's like, hmm, what's this doing here? So he's not that smart either. If we're, if, you know, as far as uh, discretion with the Belisarius memorandum, which I love how often they love to say that in this movie. Right. The memorandum. The memorandum. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I want to, of course, now get to who I consider probably the MVP of this movie, and that is Larry Drake, RIP Larry Drake, who actually passed away in 2016. He is a blast in this. And yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad. It doesn't make any sense that he came back in the second one, but I'm glad he did because he is, he is so much fun in the scenes where he's playing Durant, where he's collecting fingers, um, where he, he's when he's playing Westlake as Durant in that scene in ha- in uh, Chinatown, all of that. I, I, he's got such a presence about him and such a specific delivery that we used to, when I, I grew up with this movie a lot, like we used to watch this a lot as, as in, in my parent, you know, my house. So mm-hmm. we used to quote this movie. Uh, obviously his name's Durant, Robert Durant, and my name is Robert. So like, you know, quoting that Robert G Durant, that whole thing. Um, it's, he's just, do you, do you agree that he is probably the standout performance of this movie? Because I think Durant is so much fun to watch. I'd say so. I, the bad guy makes the movie because in this film, because you, it's, it's his face is the one that you're primarily seeing. Yeah. You know, you've got your monster and you see his face to a point, but that's not the evil one. The evil one that you're seeing has this much prettier face, but there's death in his eyes and there's no emotion unless he's angry and the shit that he does is just so remorseless and over the top that you're just like you can't help but to love him almost like Hannibal Lecter yeah you know like you said where where he's got the the fetish for collecting fingers and and you know here are my points one click you're like oh Jesus Christ (laughs) number three I've got seven more points (laughs) (laughs) and then the scream that just like transitions right into the title sequence ah it's great 
It was, but then I'm kind of like, did the other fingers where there's like gangrene, they didn't hurt so much, or is like, <laughs> is the ring finger hurt a lot more than the rest? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he was so cold. I loved him. I, I really did. I've got a thing for bad guys. There are certain bad guys in movies that have just like been my heroes growing up. He was one of them. Um, Hannibal, uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter was another one. Robert England as Freddie, of course. Um, and Lewis Jordan, Lewis Jordan was another big bad guy for me that I thought this was just the fucking bees knees of bad guys in, um, Swamp Thing, the guy that yeah. plays, uh, um, Arcane, you know, gave me the idea that, you know, the good bad guys, you know, those are the guys that always have those elegant places. He's playing piano, he's smart, but still charismatic. Now, Durant is none of those things, but <laughs> he does have that psychosis that does make him a little bit more, more fun to watch. He's, he's definitely one of my favorite film bad guys of all time. You know, for a quote-unquote small of a film as, as Dark Man was or Swamp Thing was, these bad guys, these actors stand out as phenomenal and really make the movie. You know, your hero is only good as his villain. So he's only as heroic as the other person is as sadistic. Yeah. And... Yeah, I- and Durant. <laughs> There's a lot to say. He's just, he's sick. He has no friendship. He has no empathy. He has no remorse. He has his job. Pretty much. And apparently not kids. No, not kids or, or, uh, well, that's the, this is the other thing that I didn't even realize until uh, my, my last, my rewatch for this, for this episode is that there's apparently a theory that Durant is supposed to be gay. And I think that it stems from the part in the diner where one of them is like, uh, you know, I know he likes Ricky. And then there's like, he like treats Ricky, he treats Ricky a little differently. Oh. Um, uh, uh, Strack makes that joke about his wife died and he thinks it's hilarious as if like, ha ha ha, Durant would never have a wife. So like now I'm wondering if that's a thing, like if that was what Raimi was trying to put in the movie, because if, if he did, it was so subtle that I never noticed it until now. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, that would make... Uh, it would Durant, make sense, yeah. That would make him the same type of uh, psychopath or sociopath as Butterfield in um, Lord of Illusions. Yeah. Or make, yeah, her, so. make him a similar type of character. I don't think it would damage, if that was the case, I don't think that would hinder hinder anything. It would make a little bit more sense to what you were saying as far as uh, him being nicer to, to Rick. Yeah, because he doesn't. He doesn't have a thing for for any ladies in the movie. He doesn't right. care about anything like that. Yeah, so maybe, who maybe. maybe maybe he is even in denial of his own sexuality, and that's part of why he's so detached from things. Or like I don't know. It's an interesting. You don't you don't really get a, a sense of who Durant is besides just running his business and collecting his money and throwing his henchmen out of windows and and all of that stuff. So I I just think that's an interesting sort of hint at what might be driving him psychologically like what might be going on behind those icy uh, uh that icy stare that he has i don't know a lot of times what i figure out for most bad guys is sometimes they just love what they do mm-hmm. yeah could be that too so i mean durant they make a, a lot of uh references to uh paramilitary mm-hmm. and so you know you see a lot of movies where those guys become mercenaries afterwards or go to crime just because that's what they know. Yeah. But he, he may also have other, other issues. Who knows? 
just an interesting theory I came across and I was wanted to run that by he might you. Be a self-loather. He might yeah. just have fetishes. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> All of the above, possibly. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, we, well, we got to mention the, the leg gun, which again is another very grindhouse like kind of ridic- like ridiculous, but in the best way idea that one of Durant's, I've, I think, what's his, is his name even Skip? I think his name is. Uh, uh, are you talking yeah. about the guy that was in Wayne's World? Is that, oh, it is the, that is the guy from Wayne's World. Yeah, that's Terry. Or, uh, no, 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 not Terry. Um, well, one of them guys. Name. Is, yeah. yeah. There's one from Wayne's World, and then the other guy is, the actor is Dan Hicks, is Skip, is the one with the, the, the false leg. Okay, so the, yes, that was Dan Hicks, um, I think. Mm-hmm. He just he just passed away last month, I believe. Oh wow! Yeah he uh, he lost a oh, battle yeah. with cancer, unfortunately. Yeah that that is another one of those so crazy it works ideas. Having uh, a henchman with a false leg who just you know uses that to hide hide weapons, and then he's you know in the first scene he's hopping while they take the gun out. Uh, it's it's so uh, it's crazy, and the, the movie establishes right out the gate what kind of tone it's going for, and I love it. Yeah, this is what you're in for. If you like James Bond gimmicks, this is for you. <laughs> but no, it, it's true. Like it, the guy literally had a wooden leg. He just you know, most people carry booze in theirs. He happened to have an Uzi in his. Yeah, that's just another day at the office for Skip. <laughs> Hobble. <laughs> um, oh, cut it off. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about also the, uh, well, I guess we should get into like the third act, uh, which by the way, dark man and his fedora. I, I like, I have a, a, a several fedoras. I'm a fedora guy. And I feel like dark man might've been part of why I was like, that looks cool. Look at the way he's jumping around with that coat and that hat on. Um, I love the whole third act, the whole attack on the, what I'm calling again, the dark cave. Uh, we have all this mask work which then Mission Impossible tries to do uh, less less thrillingly, I'd say, for the most part, just because this is kind of non like it's all mask stuff. Like that last, that whole uh, attack on the on the uh, on his lair and the way he turns them all against each other. What are kind of your thoughts on that whole sequence and leading into the uh, the helicopter thing? That was the most fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. That and then that part again also reminded me the most of RoboCop because they've got the, the, the same steel mill kind of uh, uh, hangout that they get attacked in and the bad guys make the unfortunate mistake of saying, oh, you know, let's go get him in his own place. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go get a superhero in his own place. It <laughs> never works out good for anybody. General Zod, non, nobody. Um, I loved it. I loved the... I love the turning each other against one another, shooting shooting at them because they see Peyton and they pull the mask off and oh shit, there's his buddy. Um, and then again, the guy from Wayne's World where he finally buys it, it's it's with the uh, the bobbing head or the bobbing bird mm-hmm. over the lighter with their leaking gas, and that was just awesome for me. That makes that make the whole movie full circle for me when he finally kills him that way. Yeah. So I mean that was that was just exciting and I dug it. But do we it's know a, what happened to the cat? I don't know. I would imagine the cat probably ran out whenever <laughs> the noise and like, shooting started. I'm like, screw this, I'm bouncing. Good luck, Dark Man. I would have uh, loved to see the cat just like <laughs> reach out and get somebody's face, like, that's my dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think the uh 
the uh, the hologram the you know that you said with the with the little bird thing bouncing up and down on the lighter the callback from the beginning of the movie i i think that's another indication of how much he's changed like not only is westlake taking these guys out he's enjoying it and he is like fucking with them on, like on purpose and i i i that's that's again sort of the revenge fantasy part of it where in the you know the first one he goes after is rick and he does the he says i told you everything you wanted and he's like i know you did but let's pretend you didn't and you get that great like uh the great <laughs> great as in disturbing in a way but also that was in a my different way. favorite scene in the whole movie <laughs> favorite uh, quote favorite scene the the puppet of of ivan reitman was yeah. fantastic the way the jaw was just permanently ah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that 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 I image is burned into my head <laughs> um so when you see that that uh that lighter callback from the beginning of the movie you're like oh man dark man is just like full-on like he's he, what a what a rascal that dark man is basically it's kind of where it's going that he develops sort of a perverse sense of humor about all about it all and i i think that's really fun how much that contrasts with the sort of mild-mannered kind of soft-spoken like you know scientist he was at the beginning of the movie yeah well, hell, if you thought he was a prankster to him, they should talk about the pranks that he pulled on his wife before he turned. <laughs> <laughs> he was a pain in the ass then. <laughs> no, it's they're fun and and that those jokes. I mean, you you would kind of have to assume, okay, if you're going that crazy, kind of like the Joker. Yeah, you you make the best out of just about everything that you're doing, or at least find some sense of of pleasure or justification in it. But I. I I think you start to finally see his his pain lessen the more he enjoys it. Mm-hmm. You see more of Peyton, Peyton's pain lessen towards the end, and and I like that. I mean, it sucks. Yeah, he's he's alone. He's walking off Bruce Banner style. I I feel like you get a little, and it might just be the burnt face part of it that's that's triggering this but you get a little bit like he almost becomes like a, a vigilante freddy krueger towards the end there and i and i think that's that's that in and of itself already like i want to see more of that just just him kind of uh turning that on the criminal element and it there's it it, it really is kind of a a perfect blend of the vigilante justice of batman the disfigurement of like the phantom of the opera and sort of sick sense of humor of someone like Freddy Krueger. And I think that's, you, you see, that's the part, like you said, that's where he starts to really lean into it. He's like, I got these fuckers now locked down. They're in my place where I have a bazillion masks. So there's lots of options here. Like you said, they come to his, his home on his turf. Not a smart move. Um, and I, yeah, I, I love that part of it that you really, you, you really play the, 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 the big, uh, the big good and evil part of it, like the, the, the grand scale of that kind of uh, showdown in the, in the third act. So it's, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I just remembered my, my derailment. Thank good, you. Go for it. Um, the more you get into that third act, the, the less you see Peyton being in pain other than having to leave Julie, you see him becoming more comfortable with who he currently is. And I think that's one of the things that makes that, that scene where he's fucking with everybody so much fun is because you know, deep down he is having fun with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe that just kind of rubs off in, a, in an audience participation sort of way. Yeah. I mean, he says at the end, uh, Strack is like, Oh, you can't kill me. 
you don't have, you know, you don't have, you don't have it in you or whatever. And he, he lets him go. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning to live with a lot of things. It's sort of an, a, a weird, like, it's, it's a, it's a very, in a, and I mean this as a compliment, it's a very strange and bizarre movie in a lot of ways, but ultimately it's also sort of uplifting at the end and that it, he does come to terms with who he is. He, it's sort of a coming of age story in a way of him coming, becoming from a, you know, a good air quotes, normal scientist, you know, with a normal life with this, you know, his girlfriend and all that other stuff, whatever normal means according to the movie and just realizing that, nope, that's not my destiny. I'm going to stop yearning for that so much. And I'm just going to try and make the best of what I, you know, where I am and what I, what I'm capable of uh, as dark man, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. He's without, without Julie, he's not Peyton and, and he can't, he can't have that. So he, and, and he figures that out by the end and that's why he leaves and puts the last mask on or the, the last shimp as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to what you'd said, as far as if, if they would continue that now, I think it's a perfect lead in there's it's, you have your establishment origin story. Mm-hmm. You've seen him be that, that person. And he's always going to be Peyton to a point, but there's still a lot more room now with the finale of the third act for dark man to be just dark man or, or, or to grow as dark man. Apparently Ramey, I guess wanted Bruce Campbell as dark man. Uh, do you think, how do you think that movie would have worked uh, or how it would have played differently? Um, I think it would have been the same. Okay. Uh, I, I, again, I don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that a lot of the other picks that they'd chosen instead of Liam, Liam Neeson would have been as good, but I love Bruce Campbell mm-hmm. every bit as much as you or the next guy. I love him as much as Liam Neeson. I I think for, for as the way he knows how Sam thinks and works and what Sam wants, I think he would have delivered that part. Okay. Right. Um, other actors not knowing Sam or not having a professional background like Liam Neeson does, I I don't see it having gone gone as well. Bruce Campbell is somebody I, I always want to see more of. Yeah. So I wonder if they were, and you know, as we're kind of winding down, if they were to continue this, do you have I mean obviously I, I think we both agree we would want it to more or less pick up pretty much right after this movie. Just do the what they're do do what every studio is doing with every franchise now and being like, yep, all those other things, any straight to video sequels or whatever that came after, doesn't count. We're picking up from the from the OG Halloween, uh Terminator tried to do something like that. Uh, there's all these rumors <laughs> about Alien might do that too. So there's this Robocop at some point was supposed to I don't know if not that's happening oh, anymore. No. Um so uh, would you? Who would you want to see playing Darkman? Because here we had Liam Neeson, Bruce Campbell for two seconds, and the straight to video sequels we had Arnold Vosloo, which is random uh, as as Westlake. Uh, any idea on who you'd like to see in that role? Oh gosh, maybe Stephen Amell. I could see that. I think he could pull that off. He's he's got dark darkness. I mean, he 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 pulled that re- off really well in Arrow. Um, I don't know about his voice, but I think he has the musculature and the physicality to do a heck of a lot more in, in superhero movies than, 
than what we already saw in Arrow. Mm-hmm. I think he could do a lot of the stunts that Darkman would require because Darkman gets fucked up left and right. That's, oh, yeah. That's his superpower, just like Wolverine. Right. Um, <laughs> I didn't feel it. <laughs> well, there's that, but, that and towards, towards the end of the movie, he gets like that bolt shot through his hand on the steel beam. And I, as even as a kid, I was like, Oh Jesus, uh, he just like pulls right <laughs> off of it. Oof. It's rough. But I don't, I don't know about any other current actors right now that, that could pull that off. Like you want to look at it in the sense of like, okay, who was a good Batman or who would be a good Batman? Right. I haven't seen a good Batman. I mean, I take shit for it all the time. I really liked Ben Affleck as Batman. I'll go mm-hmm. to my grave with that one. I thought he was a good Batman. But prior to that, I don't think that there was a good Batman movie since 89. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you see all these other people playing Batman, and you're just like, either A, they were an okay Batman, or B, they were a good Bruce Wayne, but they're never a whole package. So it's, it's hard to say if you can't figure out someone to play a good Batman, how can you find someone to play a good uh, Darkman? Because Darkman, when he takes off his mask, is still essentially wearing a mask. It's got to be somebody that that could ha- express that emotion with their eyes and their voice like mm-hmm. Liam Neeson could. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I would like to see that happen. I mean, we've already seen... Uh, we've already seen Raimi continue the evil dead as a TV show. I think Darkman would be a great, like limited series for one of the 6 million streaming services. And then you wouldn't have to worry about, Oh, we've got to cut it down for whatever rating so we can release it theatrically. I feel like that's, if it's going to happen, that would be the way it would happen. So I would be down for that. I think this movie is beloved by people like us, but a lot of people that, a lot of people are probably still aren't familiar with it. You know, if you're not into the genre, you might not, this, you might have blown right past dark man. But if you've, if you've seen it, odds are you like, you love it. And it's a huge part of your, uh, your upbringing as a, as a, as a cinephile. And, you know, my, oh, yeah. uh, my, I don't know if it's cause I, now realizing the marketing with the, who is God dark man thing. Now I'm wondering, cause my dad, we used to watch things and he used to at the end when when you know especially something like this where it ends like I am Dark Man. He used to be like uh, I am Dark Man, and then it became like everything, like everything I am, you know, whatever the movie was afterwards. Like the, you get that like the, like adrenaline rush from a movie, and I, that's that was Dark Man. Like this was I in such in a, a rotation in my house with the '89 Batman and, and other movies like that with Dick Tracy, a lot of those early uh, early '90s comic booky movies, and I, I feel like it needs to be discovered and probably the best way in this day and age for people to discover this movie who haven't seen it is to do something new, like a limited series that picks up where the movie leaves off or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it would be great if, if they did dark man in the same way that they did daredevil or punisher. It yes, would be exactly. Well, exactly. You know, give them, give him, give him the leeway to tell a story that he likes to tell it like he did with Ash versus evil dead. And you won't be disappointed. Yeah, I think so. So we'll see. Except for that last episode, but whatever. <laughs> of Ash versus Evil Dead? Yes. Yeah, it was. it's fine. I mean, I think we're just thankful that we got any more of Bruce Campbell as Ash at that point. But that's a, hell, that's a really fun show. I mean, I've already talked to um, Jeff Johnson about doing an, ep- an episode on Ash versus Evil Dead of this show. So we're going to do that at some point. Uh, so that, that I'm looking forward to going back and revisiting that. That's just going to take more time commitment because I have, I want to go back and rewatch the the series, but thankfully it's pretty, pretty fast watch, but 
Is there anything else about Darkman we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we start uh, winding down? I think we've actually covered it all. I we've think we gotten, did a pretty good job. Yeah. We got the Uzi leg. We got, uh, we got <laughs> Bruce important. Campbell. We got Rick's death, which was the most important part. Uh, <laughs> Durant, Strack. Oh, wait. The Hong Kong uh, exchange. That was dope. Where yeah, that has is. to, uh, you know, pretend to be Durant under distress and basically comes up with the idea you have until I smoke this cigar to come up with my money or it's your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and he cuts the cigar down by like 90%. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, oh, dude, that's a dad move right there. You got the count of three. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. Uh, I also, since we're just kind of pointing out random moments now, I love when Polly wakes up in bed and they're like, Polly, wake up. And he's, he's like, I don't even know how I got dressed. And he's like, like bawling while like about like sobbing because he knows what's about to happen. <laughs> I, I love that. The, 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 uh, Durant and his gang are so, are, they just, every one of them are just really fun to watch. And it's just, you don't get a lot of time with them, but what you do get is always very satisfying. Yes. I like them more than Clarence Boddicker's gang. Right. And I like Exa them yes. a lot. So, but yeah, they're, they're just, they're fun. Like the bad guys always make the best part of the movie, especially when it comes to humor, because it's that violent irony that we used to love in the nineties. <coughs> right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. No, but this, this is a shining gem. I want to see it come back. I want to see it have more recognition from young people. Now, maybe a great Blu-ray <coughs> intent shout factory. Um, and then just let it see where it could ride because dark man's a story that still has a lot more to tell. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Well, let's hope we see that. Uh, Kevin Smith, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? You could find me on Twitter at KCS Kevin Smith. And you could also follow us at MST3K motivation on Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much for getting, giving me the chance to talk about dark man. I think we, I forget how this even came up in some kind of Facebook conversation. And I was just like, we should talk about dark man. And you were like, yes, because it's I think we're both giant man children who like the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talking about a movie that I fell in love with, uh, like, well, that came out 30 years ago, actually this is 30th anniversary. So that didn't even, that was not intentional, but uh, oh gosh, it is. Yeah. Uh, there's, oh, look, there's in my camera. There's another gray hair. Look at that, that right there. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I, I'm responsible for pointing it out now. So that, that one's on me. But uh, <laughs> we definitely need to have you back at some point, talk about something else uh, love in this genre or, or whatever. But we'll, we'll definitely figure something else out. So thanks. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Kevin. This was a blast. Thank you very much for having me, Robert. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Has he got a little KD?